Hello, my name's Gregory Wilker. Thank you for listening to my podcast, Live with Greg. Today is November 17th, 2019, and last night I learned that my podcast had way exceeded the resources I have to keep it alive as a video podcast. So I am actively working to move it to an audio podcast. The video is still available on my website, gregorywoker.com, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Live with Greg. Thanks for your support. Episode of Live with Greg. I'm here with Bernard, the editor in chief and founder of Sensitive Skin Magazine. Yes, I am. All right, indeed. All right, and we know each other not. So true. But we'll see what we learn today. All right. <laughs> what better way to get to know each other than uh, than an interview? All right. Yeah. Cool. I have to say too, it's funny. This is the. For whatever reason, this is the second podcast I've done in like a week. I did another one for another friend last week. And I was thinking, I really should start a podcast too. And I started thinking about all of these people I know who I'd love to interview. And some of them are people I've known 20 years. And then I was thinking like, you know, if I went, actually did like sort of standard interview, like, so where'd you grow up? And what'd your parents, like, I don't know this. Yeah. About so many people that I've known some pretty well, I think, or hung out with a lot, at least. Uh, yeah, so I think it's a, it's a good thing to do. Right on. I, I support it for that reason. Mm-hmm. It's a great excuse to call someone uh, right. that you want to know. Yeah. 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 All right. So, um, so earlier I said that I thought your magazine was sort of a punk ethics underground art magazine. Mm-hmm. That's kind of close. I don't know about... Sure, we have punk elements, but I, I'd say it's more of a uh, New York City underground, sort of downtown New York City underground. And I started it in... I could actually look. I have the original issue back when it was known as Poisson Cibla. <laughs> uh, oh, look at that. November, December 1991. So the end of the year, 91... Uh, I'd been living in France for a few years, and I made my living uh, along with my friend Norman Douglas, who's another writer. He was also in Paris at the same time. And I made my living as a word processor and desktop publisher. So I had a little Mac. I had one of those little Macs. And uh, it was an SE30, I think it was called. and, uh, you know, we were both, again, we were both writers and we knew a bunch of other writers and we we're like, hey, we know how to, how to do this stuff. Let's put out a magazine. So we actually put out a very small uh, flyer in Paris. Uh, I got a copy around it somewhere. Anyway, I moved back to New York and Norman was back there too. And I said, let's start a magazine and didn't know what to call it. And I was in the uh, shower one day and I still had a bottle of my shampoo I brought back from France and it said pour la peau sensible I said alright we'll use that there's this ridiculous name <laughs> and we just like kind of laughed at it we laughed at like hearing people pronounce it P.O. Sensible <laughs> so anyway it just seemed like a ridiculous venture so we gave it this ridiculous sort of name and you know then we're stuck with it at a certain point 
And anyway, started it with Norman and his first issue, uh, Darius James, Steve Cannon, John Ferris, uh, and uh, the dancer Patricia Winter. We all sat together and uh, put put content in here. And came up with this very first one was just like little uh, little stapled together things, eight pages long, and then. Uh, for whatever reason, it was a good time to do that. There wasn't a, It seemed like there wasn't a whole lot of other people doing stuff like that in New York at that time in 1991. Sort of like a dead period for whatever reason. And um, uh, it took off, you know, and we started, do it, we started doing it one every few months and more and more people uh, got into it. And, you know, we ended up having people like Richard Hell and Eileen Miles and... Uh, all these like really well-known people and we were doing events and you know getting hundreds of people to show up and it was and it was great it was uh, it was really exciting and at some point around the third or fourth inch issue I gave up and changed the name to sensitive skin this is like I'm just just tired of people mangling the name I can't take it anymore so we, we switched it to sensitive skin and uh, at some point along the way I had like falling out with all those people but you know they were all helpful and uh, I, I appreciate the work they did early on in doing it but I ended up firing them all and uh, uh, working with a couple of other writers uh, Christian X Hunter and Rob Hardin and uh, uh, you know and put out a couple more issues and then I got to a certain point and we were talking about this before uh, the, the, the camera rolled and I remember um I was at a point where I was like, I kept doing it, and I wasn't quite sure why. And I was actually driving around New York with Richard Hell. He had just gotten back from California, and he bought like a convertible 68 Dodge Charger that he'd gotten in California and drove back to New York. And we were just driving around New York. And I was talking to him, and I was like, why are you doing it? And I was like, I don't know. Why am I doing it? And then I... I stopped doing it, basically, because uh, I was unsure of myself as a writer, and I didn't quite know why I was doing this, and I'd also uh, uh, had moved from, like, word processing and desktop publishing, and probably because of this magazine, this, you know, because we started putting art in there, I started getting into Photoshop, and I thought Photoshop was a blast, and... Uh, and I moved from there. I started to. Uh, I discovered a program called Director. I don't know if you remember that. Back to, back in the CD-ROM craze. I don't know if you remember. For about for about maybe eighteen months. Yes, yes. There yes. was a section at yes. Barnes and Noble where they had all the interactive multimedia yes. CD-ROMs. I was like, that's what I want to do. And anyway. Um, you know, the whole art scene, the downtown art scene, everybody was like, you know, not everybody, I'd say virtually everybody, was either on drugs or alcohol. And I stopped doing drugs and alcohol, and I kind of wanted to get away from that scene. So that's one of the one of the reasons why I had the falling out with, like, with a lot of people. I was just like, I got to clean up my act. And uh, let's see, it's funny, I hadn't thought about this for a while, but... Uh, uh, so two things happened simultaneously. A couple of my friends started to like get published. Like Richard Hell pub- got published and put out this big book and that got a lot of attention. And Darius James put out Negrophobia, which was this kind of sensation at the time. And a couple of other friends. And I started looking at them and I was like, well, yeah, they're getting all this attention. 
And Darius especially was funny. He was hanging around with all sorts of, like, movie stars and whatever, wanted to hang around. And he still, like, I remember... Uh, broke his glasses, his eyeglasses, and couldn't afford to buy a new pair of eyeglasses. And I was like, you know, this is what success looks like in the writing business these days. <laughs> uh, uh, it somehow didn't look all that, uh, you know, glamorous to me. Um, even though he was hanging around with Uma Thurman and John Cusack and people like that, and I was like, well, that's nice, but can't afford to buy yourself a pair of glasses. That's horrible. Um, so anyway, so there was that going on, and also I started to like get into the the, the multimedia stuff, and I was like, wow, so people are willing to pay me a lot of money to do this, and saying you're great, thank you so much, as opposed to uh, the the ultra competitiveness of the art scene where people are like, you suck. You know, and, and maybe you'd get like 10 bucks for doing a reading or something like that. And I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to... So I, I actually made a, a very conscious decision. So we're around 1995, 96. I was like, I'm done. I'm not going to be an artist anymore. Even though like still many of my friends were active in the arts or whatever. I was just like, I'm just going to do this computer programming thing. I think it's really fun. And I'm like, for the first time in my life, I'm actually making a good living. So I just did that through the rest of the 90s. And, you know, it was really booming back then. It was also great, too, because, you know, I I was basically a bum. You know, I was like 32 years old and like, uh, you know, at one point, you know, sleeping on a friend's couch and whatever. And I didn't care about material possessions or whatever. But at the same time, I didn't want to be 50 and sleeping on somebody's couch like some of my friends were <laughs> at the time still it's like I want a little bit more out of life so I, I made this conscious decision so I'm just going to focus all my energy on this rather than trying to do this as a day job and then spending my real energy trying to write which seems like it's getting me nowhere anyway and even if it does get you somewhere it still seems like nowhere yeah. so maybe I'll do this and and it was also great too because like, like I said I was you know I was I, I had like no real uh, qualifications or whatever to be doing this stuff, but nobody knew how to do it at the time. It was the wild, wild west. Nobody cared what I'd been doing six months earlier. They were like, oh, you can build me a website today? Here, here's this giant pile of money. You know, and it's like, oh, this is pretty good. So, you know, that, that went on. That went on for a while, and then also, you know, I started, uh, uh, I got married and had a couple of kids, and there's all of, you know, all of everything that goes along with that, right? And it's like, now you're, now you're trapped. Now you really got to, like, <laughs> keep making money. And um, it, my, and it was and, and it was and it was ridiculous too. At a certain point, like by 1999, it's just like the work was coming in. Like I, I couldn't. I was had to turn down jobs. I was hiring people, subcontracting, and uh, and it's funny. And so I had all this extra money. So I started actually. I was living in this apartment building on East Sixth Street, uh, off Second Avenue. And uh, there were these apartments for sale in the building, and they were really cheap at the time. So at first, I bought my next—I bought the apartment next door to me for like fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, what's really <laughs> crazy? So I bought an apartment. 
I bought a, I bought an apartment there in '95. I bought a one bedroom apartment for thirty two thousand dollars in the East Village. Wow! And then a, three years later, after I had my daughter, I bought the one a studio next door for fifty thousand dollars. And people are like, "You're paying fifty thousand dollars for a studio? That's crazy! You just bought a one bedroom for almost half that." And it's like, well, it doesn't matter what it used to be; it matters what it is now. I think it's still a pretty good deal. And I ended up buying a couple more apartments in that building and and selling them and uh, so I ended up owning like a three bedroom apartment in the East Village uh, like free and clear pretty much which was like crazy again because it's like five years, six years earlier eight years earlier I'd been sleeping on somebody's couch so, uh, so it kind of worked out well and then we had the dot com crash and 9-11 and uh just everything went to hell, and like my phone from changed from ringing off the hook to didn't ring literally for a year. Nobody, there was no work to be had. Everybody was out of work, but um, I still ended up sticking with that stuff. And I moved from director. Director like fell by the wayside, and everybody was into Flash, so I got into Flash and started doing that stuff, and that was fun. And I I, I got a job for um, uh, at MTV, and I was doing kids games for Nickelodeon which was like really awesome because it was so great when that, that job was like a great way to impress uh, like six to eight year olds like I'd meet my friends kids and they're like do you know Spongebob? I said well as a matter of fact I do. Okay, I've met Spongebob. Nice. <laughs> um, so, so that went on and then uh, 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 so what was it in 2006 an old friend of mine who lived out here in the, the in Mill Valley Bay Area uh, came out there and said so oh you're you're, you're, you're uh, a flash guy and you work for MTV and uh, you must be really good and I said well yeah you know it's I'm pretty good at it so he said you should come work for me and I was like really and he's like, he owned an ad agency in Sausalito and Frankly, at that time, so my kids were like uh, nine and six at the time, my two daughters, and uh, I was sick of living in the city, you know, and New York City is like, I still tell people, if anybody younger asks me, I'm like, yeah, go. You're single? Absolutely go. You should, you should live there a few years at least. It's like the greatest place in the world if you're uh, in your 20s or even your 30s and you're single. You can just like have a great time. And it's really exciting, and you know, but by that time it was like I had a couple of kids. I was like, you know, my late thirties, and I was like, I really wanted to leave. Uh, I was really, it's it's a great place to leave if you you can go out and have fun every night. But if like you're staying home, and then not doing that because you're taking care of kids, and then you're taking kids to school in the morning and trying to figure out how to get to the school fifteen blocks away when it's raining, and uh, it became. A real pain in the ass. So, I, I wanted to leave New York for a few years, uh, and I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go. And I'd looked at upstate New York, and I was like, "No, this is too desolate." And looked in like Flagstaff, Arizona. We'd been to a few places, and then so my friend said, "Yeah, come on out. I'll fly you out and just take a look." And I got to uh, Sausalito, and I was like, "Okay, this is this will do." His place was right on the water, the Sausalito, and there's the boats and the mountains behind us and the fog, and it's like, oh, and 
there's San Francisco right over there, and here's Mill Valley, and there's like all these redwood trees and nature and whatever. And I was like, this looks pretty great. So we said, uh, uh, sure, let's give it a try. Let's let's we'll sublet our apartment for for a year, and you know we'll have an adventure. We'll come out here, and um, so it's it's uh, here for about two weeks. Before I realized this, like, okay, I'm not going back. You know, this is this is great. <laughs> and it's funny too. I mean, a number of people said, "Oh, you guys are like moving to San Francisco. You're going to want to live in the Mission." And it's like that's kind of like the East Village of San Francisco. It's like, <laughs> no, I've done, that's exactly what I don't want to do. I've done that already for like a long time, for 15 years, and I want to like live someplace where there's like trees and fresh air, and uh, you know. And, uh, my lungs suffered terribly from living in New York, and I used to be a smoker, and the air quality there is pretty bad, and I really honestly took a hit on 9-11. We lived, like, about a mile away from 9-11, and, you know, they lied, of course, about the air quality. There's now all these people who were working at the site were getting cancer and stuff and various lung diseases. And I definitely inhaled some of that dust, and, uh, you know, I was getting bronchitis, and my... I can hear myself wheezing, you know, and then I uh, moved out here with, this is like the the freshest air I've ever experienced in my life here in Mill Valley, because it's like, you've got all these redwood trees, you get the, you know, the air coming over the ocean and then scrubbed by all these like redwood and eucalyptus trees, <laughs> and it's like a, like a health resort almost, and you know, after, after a year here, my lungs stopped squeaking, and, uh, and uh, uh, I, I could breathe easily and whatever. And uh, I liked that it was dark at night and it was quiet at night and all that good stuff. And so anyway, and it's and the reason we could afford to live in Mill Valley is because we ended up selling the apartment in New York. And we were very lucky. We sold it in 2007, right before the crash. And uh, then we rented out here for a while before we ended up... Uh, buying this place but that's why we had to it's funny I feel like we're like the the Mill Valley hillbillies you know especially (laughs) most people in Mill Valley don't look like me really they look like you know the the guy from the if you ever seen that TV ad the Trivago ad you know and we actually call them Trivagos now this is definitely this guy like a classic Mill Valley guy. He's like in his fifties. He's got like short cropped, like steel gray hair, super fit, wearing like a very expensive sweater with the arms rolled down just to here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's that's not me. That's not uh, you know. So anyway, that's uh, so. Then we were out here for a few years, and uh, uh, not to get into details, I had a health crisis. Uh, my life wasn't in danger, but I was fucked up for a few months. You know, I was in bed for I was I had surgery and I was in the I was I was like you know kind of bedridden for about six weeks and started thinking like you know it's like what is it all about, man? Classic midlife crisis kind of deal, and it was like well, like I'm so I'm working still in this field, but like. Working doing games, working doing advertisements, and it's just like it's it's kind of you know it's a nice way to make a living. I don't know what else I could do to you know make a decent living. I have no other skills or anything. You know, I I, I don't know how to do anything else. But at the same time, I 
at that time I was still like when I moved out here I was kind of ambitious you know and I was like oh and I, at one point I like started a found you know uh, founded a startup and well I'm gonna change the world and then something about that just changed my whole attitude about everything it's like okay this is a decent pleasant way to make a good living but I really don't give a fuck about like making ads and whatever it's meaning it's meaningless and uh and especially so, I mean, everything moves so fast in that field. It's like people say, like, oh, show me some websites you made. And it's like, well, they're all gone. They only last a year before they're replaced with a newer, better version. So it's like it's so ephemeral, you know. So, so it again, way too, way too late to say long story short, but I started, you know, <laughs> I started, uh, I started writing again, just starting to like to to, to peck at it. And then uh, I was in New York. I was visiting New York. I've still always... I've gone back. Like, a lot of people, I think, leave and then might come back once or twice and then don't. But I've I've kept up uh, with New York. I go back once or twice a year, and I have such a great time. I still have a ton of friends there, people I've known 20, 30 years. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go for three, four days and... You know, meet different people for breakfast, lunch, dinner, hang out. And I, I socialize more there in that three or four days usually than I do in, like, the next six months of the year. Uh, uh, so it's it's a lot of fun. Anyway, so I was back in New York. This is probably about, this is like 2011. And, uh, and I, I ran into an old friend of mine, this guy named Tim Beckett. And he started talking about sensitive skin. It's like, yeah, that was great. So, like, you ever think about doing that I said, I don't know maybe and then it was funny it was just like I was just wandering around New York and I ran into Tim again like the next day I ran into him in Manhattan then I ran into him in Brooklyn and then we started talking and it's like yeah you know I'm getting into this web stuff and maybe it'd be cool to make a web yeah maybe and then the next day I ran into him again in like Brooklyn Heights I'm like what, what are you doing what's going on here it's like alright let's do this you know and so we started um uh uh, thinking about how we're going to do it, build this WordPress site, and I originally didn't want to do any print editions, but you know, I says let's just make a, a WordPress site, and I so I sent out uh, an email to about I don't know about, um, and the other thing too was is I realized too that still all of my best friends were involved in the arts or were artists to some some way, even though I was like you know doing computer programming for a long time. So I sent out about thirty forty emails. I said, I'm starting up the magazine again. Who wants to give me something? And, you know, half a dozen people responded. And I put out the first issue, which is pretty short. And uh, then again, it started taking off. So, again, at this point, we've had some really great people in the in the magazine. We've had, like, uh, John Lurie and Gary Indiana and... Uh, um, who else offhand? I don't know. A lot of very well-known uh, New York artist or whatever. So, uh, you know, again, it's gotten a name for itself. And we're on Facebook. We got over like 10,000 Facebook fans, which is kind of nice. I wish we had 100,000. Right. Uh, you know, and the magazine online gets like uh, five to 10,000 views per month, That's which, which, is, which is pretty solid. Yeah. You know, again, I wish, uh, <laughs> and I kind of feel like there's a, an audience out there for it. I wish it was 10 times bigger because then it could actually maybe like really focus my efforts on it but getting back to where we said so now I'm like there have been times where I've thought about like what am I doing this for 
And I remember that, that I stopped because I wasn't sure why I was doing it, and I kind of wish I hadn't stopped. Right. Right. So that's that's where I guess was the whole point of this. And I think it was ramble. a great foundation <laughs> to build on. That's a solid. <laughs> that's solid. So. I don't mean this to be a crass capitalistic question. And yet, it could be a crass question. Sure. Is the magazine right now um, sustaining itself with a revenue stream, or do you find that you have to fund uh, it yourself? Um, it's probably about even. You know, so what I do is like, so I, I'm still, I publish. Uh, one or two pieces uh, a week online, and I actually I was doing I, I was doing a print version of it. Here's like the biggest issue we did. We had yeah, that's huge. Like yeah. I look at that and I I see expense involved yeah. in that. Yeah, so these are it's uh, high gloss. I have it's, to charge twenty five dollars for this yeah. because it's got uh, it's gorgeous. You know, it's got like yeah, color that. art and stuff in it, whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it was. Uh, uh, this was a great. This is great. These pictures of Ruby Ray. So Ruby Ray is the one who took this famous picture of Burroughs, and so she was a friend of a friend. And these were um, these were outtakes. She actually had some outtakes of that uh, of that session she did with Burroughs. So I printed a few of them in here, and we got this interview with Burroughs by Allen Ginsberg. That strangely enough, so somebody gave me that. So in 1996, Allen Ginsberg had this interview that he'd done with Burroughs, and he said to one of his assistants, why don't you give that to those guys at Sensitive Skin? And I never published it. I stopped publishing it. And it's all these years later I brought it back, you know. So this is something that still, you know, people still read that, and it's a great interview. So uh, I don't know, what were they talking about? Well, uh, we we're talking about expenses. Right. So anyway, yeah, this got very expensive. So I basically, uh, basically stopped doing the print issues a couple of years ago, just to. So what I was doing for a while is I was gathering pieces, and then I would put out a print issue, and then release the pieces that were in it one at a time over the next few months. And I decided to do it the other way around, okay. which is I'm just uh, just publishing online. And I put out a piece or two a week, and then I put a little Facebook ad on there because, as fucking evil as Facebook is, it's like that that gets people on the site, you know. So I I I, I spend a few bucks to sponsor a little, you know, sponsor the right. piece, and you know we get traffic get traffic that way. But I'm probably going to put out a print anthology. Uh, the last so the last issue came out a little over two years ago, okay. print issue, and I'm probably going to do an anthology from time to time. I'm not sure if it's going to be in this format or if I'll do color, because again, it got very expensive. Um, And we're also doing books. Uh, We published Jenny Wade's Mayakovsky book, and uh, the, the, you know, and and some of them sell just a little bit, and these back copies sell a little bit, and it's kind of evens out. And the the wash. Yeah. yeah, In the end. I I mean, with actual money coming out of my pocket, not spending, not talking about the amount of time I spend on it, which is my, which is you know my donation or whatever, the the, you know the ten or twenty hours a month that I spend working on the magazine. Um, if we didn't live in a crass materialistic world, somebody would be paying me 
a decent salary to put out this magazine, you know, and I, and I could just focus on the, it's funny, right? It's just like a dilemma. I wish that I could stop working. And if I focused all my attention on this and work full time on it, then I think we could get an audience of like a hundred thousand people and, you know, spread the word, but it is what it is. Well, maybe when I retire, that's, that's kind of the idea is that I'll be able to retire in, you know, two or five years and uh and and then focus my attention on on this and writing as well yeah but from all the names that you mentioned mm -hmm. the only one i recognized was burroughs okay and um so it tells me i am not in the realm of writing now mm -hmm. richard hell i know because of his punk sure thing. sure um but he's a writer now. He hasn't made music in over 20 years. Right, yeah. and, I, and I know that uh, a few of them, like I'm, I'm just spacing out the gentleman's name who, um, not Black Flag, but the other kind of, that was in the same, anyway. Thurston Moore we've published from Sonic Youth. Uh, he's, okay. He writes poetry now. And who else? I mean, John Lurie was... Like the big indie, you know, was the, the Lounge Lizards and was in all those movies, Jarmish movies right, in the 80s. Right, 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 right. Yeah, he's in the, in the for Stranger Than Paradise. He's the star of Stranger Than Paradise. And who else did I mention? Gary Indiana was the, the village voice, uh, culture critic, head culture critic okay. for many years. So. Well, writing is your art form. Yes. And yeah. Unless I wanted to be pretentious and say, you know, publishing is my art form. <laughs> But Publishing is your current love. Yes, my passion. <laughs> For better my or original, worse. the stage is my original passion. The legitimate theater. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you? Do you? Uh, I only caught a piece of that. I think I missed a bit there. Um, okay, this question keeps popping. Okay. Take two. Take two, damn it. That's the first time. Oh, I've been so close to it. That's the first time. All right. So picking this up. Okay. Um, we were just talking about the disaster artist. Okay. And that, and yeah, so... Uh, boy, what did I want to say about that? We were talking about like the commercial potential for the magazine and stuff, right, whether it's right. self-sustaining... The, again, the long story short is, uh, so I have a little ad on the website, which basically pays for the server space. I I boost the posts on Facebook. Uh, Facebook, a bunch of evil cocksuckers, but it works, right? Which is like you were talking, there's all this delete Facebook stuff going on. People are leaving. The advertisers aren't leaving because Facebook advertising works better than any other advertising that's ever been figured out. Um, anyway, so I, I, I boost the post. I sponsor them when we post once or twice a week. And then I sell some back issues of the magazines and stuff like that. And it kind of evens out. The The real cost is like my sweat equity, right? I'm, I'm putting in 10 to 20 hours a month on the magazine that I'm not getting paid for. It would be uh, a dream come true if I could end up getting paid for that time. Or even more so than myself. I'd love to be able to pay... Uh, the artists uh, there's a number of people that I'd love to publish and we even would like to be published but they, they, they need money They're, they are working artists and, and we're talking about how difficult that, that is to to do at this point and, and again I was saying uh, you know a big part of it is demographics it's like when I moved to the East Village it was cheap to live there 
uh, I was there in the mid '80s, and the people who moved there in the the '70s thought like, you know, that b- what I was paying for rent was very expensive. I was paying 500 bucks for a two bedroom apartment that I was splitting with someone. But you know, all those people in the '70s, they're, they're paying 80 bucks a month for storefronts, and so you were able to, you know, just have some work a few hours a month, and uh, you know, get by. And I, I have friends who were. Living in San Francisco in the in the in the hate in the '60s, and that's they said the same thing. They would get these Victorian houses, that were giant giant houses, and have ten people living there, and the rent was forty bucks a month. And they said, "Yeah, I worked like one or two days a month as a cashier, and it was enough to get by on." So, and those days are long gone. So, uh, but you're talking about the disaster artists. I, I think something that's really important uh, uh, to uh, not to be an artist, but to produce something that's worthwhile. I mean, obviously you have to have the passion, but and this would be the the, the exception to that rule. I think you need to lose your ego somehow. And I think that when in my earlier days, I was like, oh, I'm going to like put this book out, and then everybody will see how great I am and whatever. And I, I've actually uh, I did want to talk about this. I, I recently finished a novel that I'm going to like start shopping around. And it's not like this super literary thing. It's 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 a you know it's it's a a, a neo noir uh, that takes place in Mill Valley and it's about a about a realtor <laughs> who stumbles across like an old murder he thinks in an estate sale and it's just social commentary about Mill Valley and it's funny I think and wow but it's but it's like so unambitious compared to the stuff that I was trying to do when I was young, but it was fun, and I was like, I'm putting this out there, and like, people have read it and really like it, and I was like, great, you know, I'm not trying to like be William Faulkner or whatever, I'm just saying, I'd, I'd, I'd be settled to be John D. McDonald at this point in my in my life, but uh, but, I, but I do want to talk about the disaster artist, because like, like you said, that's amazing, this, this, this nut whatever just put out this movie that people say is the worst movie of all time, but at the same time, people still watch it and are talking about it. And they make a big movie about the making of it. And it, it reminds me a lot of the, the same story uh, is Ed Wood, you know, the guy who made Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is maybe the room has surpassed it, but for many years was considered this is the worst movie ever made. Right. And, and I think it was John Waters who said, no, it's not the worst movie ever made. The worst movie ever made is boring. Right. You can watch Plan Nine from Outer Space and like have a great time. You laugh. You love it. You watch it more than once. You watch it with your friends. Right. And compared to like like you you were saying, so what, what were like the best picture winners of the same year that like uh, uh, that came? Like I don't know, fucking Ben Hur or you know, or, right. or, what was it called, Marnie? You know the. I don't know. What, no, you know no, the one no. the Ernest Borgnine one? Oh, Brian, Brian, right? Brian. It's like, who the fuck watches that? Right. Why would anybody watch that movie? But people still watch Plan 9. Right. And they're still watching The Room because they're fun. So what is what is this like word quality mean? You know, it's just yes. like the worst, the worst art is boring, right? And, and you and I also had just mentioned about um, Van Gogh. Right. And Van Gogh was... Totally unrecognized during his time, right? Right. And now is recognized as one of the greatest, artists. right? And I mean that's also that's like I think maybe the highest achievement that art can produce is I mean with Van Gogh is he changed the way that people looked at paintings, 
Right. That's that, that's what I think the highest. He said it's changed something about human perception about the way the human mind works. It's like at that time, you know, no, right, nobody wanted to buy his paint. People were like, this guy's a fucking psycho. And it was like, well, he's just throwing blobs of paint on there. This is garbage. And it took a while for people to, and a few people maybe recognized it, like uh, Gauguin, I guess, recognized right. that it was great, right? But and right. people probably thought the same of Gauguin at the time. Like, what is this fruit on the table? What is you know? But yeah. that, that to me is like the, the 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 highest achievement that you can get from art is it actually changed the, people's perception of the world or changed the way people think. Um, so, do you think? Because you mentioned earlier that in order to create art of value, mm-hmm. one has to let go of ego. I think so. I mean, which is which is maybe just just true for me. You know, it's been valuable for. I, I don't know that Picasso ever let go of his right, ego. Right. And Hemingway <laughs> came to mind. Yeah, I, and, and there's the woman who wrote um, "Rhymes with Orange." Are you familiar with that book? Mm-hmm. It was a novel I read in college, and, and she's, you know, one of her quotes is, I'm the greatest American novelist ever. Yeah. It was a great book. but Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it works for them. So I, I suppose it's easier to feel that way if you're world famous for doing what you're doing. Then it's probably a little easier to carry that ego around because you've got the, you know, the affirmation of it constantly. But I don't know. But, uh, you know, I think... Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I think uh, Picasso's best work was behind him by the time he became world famous. And the same with Hemingway. The best stuff, and Fitzgerald, their best stuff was done before they were famous. <laughs> famous Fame kills people. It's terrible. You know, it's... Uh, uh, I'll say something, too. It's funny. It's, it's like, I was famous for three days. A number of years ago, I wrote an article for a tech journal called Read Right. And it was about how Facebook, uh, how, how about dead people were liking stuff on Facebook. <laughs> and I was just kind of noticed this. It's like I saw something as like, yeah, and I can't remember. It's like your friend who died six months ago likes Walmart. And I was like, no, first of all, he's dead. Second of all, he didn't like Walmart. What the fuck is going on here? So, I mean, Facebook's a fucking cesspool, and it always has been. Uh, and, and so... I, I spoke to a number of people about this, and there was like fake. There were people, all sorts of people, saying, "You like so and so, my anarchist uh, hippie friend who lives in the East Village, likes Citibank." And I was like, "No, he doesn't." And there was all sorts of explanations as to how this could have happened. But the worst part was like, you know, people were actually dead. We're still liking stuff right. on Facebook. Anyway, I wrote this article, and. You know, it went viral, and uh, it, it got like three million reads in like a week. And I mean, it was like on the front page of Dig. It's like, why is Facebook liking? And all sorts of people were calling me. I was doing interviews for newspapers. I went to a uh, to a to a talk by Guy Kawasaki, who's like somebody I've admired for a long time. He's a tech guru kind of guy, writer for you know since the eighties, and. Uh, you know, I, I'm just sitting down there, and the presenter says, "Oh, Bernard, I, you've got to meet Guy Kawasaki. You've got to meet this guy. He's the one who did the fame." And Guy Kawasaki, I'm like, "Wow, how did you figure this out?" And I'm like, "What the fuck is going on here?" <laughs> but, and, and after three days or so, it wore off. It was gone. Uh, but um, 
I had a taste of what fame was for a minute, and it was uh, it was a mind altering drug, basically, and it it felt great. Yeah. You know, it was like really people were coming up to me and like say, "Oh, I want to talk. You're great. I love you. I don't know you, but oh, you're you know." Getting blasted for it, but it was it was like incredibly euphoric, yeah. and it was an interesting experience. And I thought, like, how fucked up would you get if you got this all the time, or especially like how fucked up would you be if you like were a child star and got this from the time you were a kid? Like, oh my god, you'd be so twisted, you know? It's like. <laughs> Man, like I'm just now Mick Jagger pops into my head. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, he's kept that Rolling Stones machine running for so long. Yeah. And yet he's, you know, a 76-year-old who's dating 20-year-olds. and Yeah. But on the other it hand... Seems crazy, but at the same time, God bless him. You know? Right, I, exactly. You know, and yeah. they're human. They have freedom of will. Yeah. No one's coercing them into that but, situation. But, you know, uh, I, but... Um, you know, I suppose you see uh, very, very rich septuagenarians occasionally marrying much younger, right. beautiful women. Uh, but there's something about the fame. He's rich and famous, but well, like he's, you know, there's you know, kind of like dried, dried up kind of like. <laughs> well, and he's not though. You know, at seventy plus years old, he's still jumping around. Oh yeah, no, that's for that's great. An hour yeah. and a half. But it's funny. It was just like my my. Uh, daughter when she was 13 or 14 got into the Rolling Stones and there's pictures of Mick Jagger from like the 60s and thought he was dreamy and then she's like oh my god I just saw what Mick Jagger looks like now <laughs> I said oh I said really why don't you take a look and see what Keith Richards oh, looks yeah. like now she was like ah yeah. and I think that was like the end of her Stones fascination oh, that's too bad <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but, you said, but one of these like gorgeous 20 two-year-old models doing with this like guy in his 70s you know it's like it's they're massively attracted to the, the to the fame it's just like you know it's a it's a strange strange thing and and you had a taste of it so with the taste that you've had there's the positive of fame too you know like a sustained fame oprah winfrey comes to mind the dalai lama you know, some people who have been able to sustain a international recognition right. and adoration and continually move it into positive. Yeah, but I think that, you know, the Dalai Lama might be more of an exception to the rule of how he's, like, handled that handled that fame. Right. You know, no, I, I really do think it's, like, for, for many people or for most people, it's a destructive sort of force. But can it be like the four-minute mile where, okay, if someone's doing it, then I know it's humanly possible, and I can... Well, you know, sure, there's the idea of having heroes, which right. is good, especially, you know, I guess at any age, it's good to have role models and people you admire, you know, and clearly some people handle it better than others, you know. I think of like, you know, but I think of like all those child stars, like how messed up they got, like Danny Bonaducci or... Tatum O'Neill or right. somebody like that. You now know. Danny came out of it, and a lot of you know a lot of them have come out. I think of it. Tatum has too. Has she? I don't I know. I think I think so. I knew her. Uh, it was a, 
she was a good friend of a good friend of mine in New York, so I met her a few times, and she was a sweet kid, but, you know, she had a lot of shit she had to deal with. Yeah. Being married to John McEnroe for a while and having kids with him was no picnic, apparently. Well, but. <laughs> yes, but that, that opens the whole realm of marriage and that. Yeah, know. yeah. And, uh, all right, so to kind of conclude and unfortunately there's that 15 minutes that only you and I will ever be aware of oh, it's just like it's like the Nixon tapes God, you know <laughs> they only could dig up what was on that 15 missing minutes man the whole that thing would it. come crumbling down <laughs> <laughs> that's the linchpin but uh, do you still experience that dark the shadow the you know the voice within that's saying this is all hoax. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, every yeah. day. I mean, really? you know. I mean, I I I, I have uh, real suspicions of people who don't feel that way. Really? You know, who aren't in touch with the the shadow. You know, you got to be in touch with your shadow, right? You got to know your. I don't know. <laughs> you got to know your shadow. You gotta, you know. But it's it's. Uh, you know, at the same point, it's something you you have to come to accept those dark parts of yourself, I think, and just go, well, you know, okay, that's part of me, and move on. Right. You know, you can't let it uh, defeat you, you know. You, if you end up, like, embracing that shadow, you become like, you know, I don't know, the white supremacist skinhead or something, you know, where you turn, like, where you, where you have so much self-hatred that the only way that you can survive it is by turning it outward, Right. So I think that's the, 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 the danger of that. But I think, I mean, geez, an, an artist without some, it, it's funny because I think like, like to, I think to be like a really, you know, incredible, successful artist like a Picasso or you can think of anybody. It's like you kind of have to be, maybe you do have to have like that ego run wild and have no self-doubt. And have like this incredibly irrational self-confidence, you know. I mean, to bring in the sports analogy, you know, it's like I know, uh, I'm thinking of somebody like Steph Curry, who's like, you know, clearly like head and shoulders above most other basketball players. And, you know, the guy who's like his backup or whatever, the guy who's playing him, who's not an all-star, has to think, I'm better than that guy. I could do. I, I'm going to beat him today. I'm, you know what I mean. You kind of right, need that right. sort of irrational self confidence. But I think that that makes you end up being like a shitty human being. You know, I think of like again the sports. I think of like what 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 like a horrible human being Michael Jordan is. So, you know? I don't know. Yeah, you know, he's, he's there's lots yeah. of stories. Uh, you know, he's not a nice guy. Uh, you know, gotten fist fights with his teammates and stuff like right, that. Kind of. Right. Um, but, I mean, he was the greatest basketball player in the world, and he knew it, and he wanted to let you know it. And maybe, you know, uh, it, it's a funny thing. It's just like, it's, so if I was on a basketball team, he'd be the guy I'd want to play with. If I was uh, hanging around getting a cup of coffee, shooting the shit, I wouldn't want to hang around with him. And that, so, I think, is like one of my fundamental things in life right now. Do you have to be a dickhead? to propel one's will and energy into a creative... You know, again, I don't manner. think you do. I think you can do it by letting go of the ego and just sort of, like, naturally, just like, here's what I am, here's what I'm doing. Uh, but I, I think it's maybe to get to that supernatural level, yeah, you have to be a fucking dick, you know? And you, you, you look at so many people 
who have achieved that level of fame. And of course, there's exceptions, but so many of them, it's about sacrifice. You know, they, there was a certain in, intense level of, of selfishness, you know, that they, they needed to achieve that. Here's, I'm going off into a completely different tangent, but I, I just saw that movie the other day, The Death of Stalin. Okay. Which I thought was a great movie. And really, uh, you know, the stuff that was going on was horrifying, and they treated it as a dark comedy. It was a very dark comedy. But, uh, you know, thinking about, like, what... Uh, I had this realization. So, like, Stalin was thought of, like, as a god by, like, a lot of those people. Even during the terror, even the people he was terrorizing, like, kind of worshipped him as this god. And maybe one of the reasons is... Um, that like he his son was captured by the Nazis in World War II and the the Russians had uh, captured uh, Field Marshal Paulus during the Battle of Stalingrad I think it was and the, the Germans said we'll trade you your son for uh, for Paulus and Stalin said I'm not going to trade a lieutenant for a field marshal are you crazy and his son died in a, in a German POW camp. So um, it's horrible. You know, like what kind of person would do something like that? But at the same time, it occurred to me that like maybe that's why people like, you know, it's almost it's, it's like he, he let his son die for us, you know, and, right. and he gave this sacrifice. And, and I think that probably had to do with. Uh, the people, the, the, a lot of people, I thought, like, oh my God, what a monster! But I think a lot of people also went, like, yes, he's one of us. We're all suffering and losing family members in this war, and he did too. And um, yeah, maybe that's what you, you know, or to think about Donald Trump. What is this fucking guy? He's screwed over like every person he's ever met. I, I heard something, something really, somebody say something really interesting about him. Um, I can't remember who it was. It was like Mark Cuban or Warren Buffett or some other, you know, whatever. And he's like, you know, uh, find me one person who, just find me one person who, who can say, I went into business with Donald Trump and I made a lot of money. Or I worked with Donald Trump and he was my mentor and he taught me everything. I said, like, there's nobody like that. He's just... Uh, you know, just stab people in the back and famously like would stiff contractors left and right and, you know, had the team of lawyers who were ready to sue everybody. And that worked when he was like just a, uh, honestly, like a second rate developer in New York. I mean, really, you know, even in New York City, the big developers are like the Dursts or whatever, who own like fucking 20% of Manhattan or something like that. Trump's got a hotel here and there. He's a two-bit player uh, with those guys. But, you know, he's, and look, he's the fucking president. He's the president of the United States, and, yeah. And he did it all with, like, pure pure narcissism. Yeah. And it's, and it's strange to see, like, interviews with his supporters who still, I mean, they love him. Yeah. They think he's great. I think there's potential for eight years. Anything can happen. That's obvious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but exactly. Who is anybody to say that's not going to happen after the fact that he, you know, became right. became president? But if that can happen, anything can happen. Right, and and what's cool about anything can happen is potentially this uh, energy happening from our kids. 
Yeah. It could, mm-hmm. anything can happen. Like maybe there right. is going to be an, um, the word that popped into mind is immaculate, immaculate consciousness that. A raising of the consciousness. Right. Absolutely. We're right. watching it happen and it's great, you right. know, and, right. and real change in society with some exceptions has never come from politicians. You know, it comes from the streets. It comes from it comes from the bottom up. It will come from like you think of like all of these. I mean, I don't know. Of course, I have a jaundiced view. My kids grew up in the Bay Area, so they're super liberal and everything. But I just, in general, see like the attitude of uh, you know. It's funny just thinking about like Bush essentially won the election in two thousand four, running against gay marriage. Right, he basically they, they he won. I think it was like Ohio and Pennsylvania was close, and he basically came out. Oh, you know, they're gonna they're gonna let the gays marry, and it'll be the end of the family. And he basically won the election, his re-election on that issue. And now people are like, you know, even just like fifteen years later, people are like, who cares? Right. You know, and it was funny. It was uh, a few years ago. My daughter had to write a paper for for school. Uh, uh, for or against gay marriage, and she literally didn't understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, I don't get it. This is against, like, why? What? Why? Yeah. Why would anybody be against two people getting married or in love? I don't. I don't understand. See, yeah. Right. So there's hope for the world. There is hope for the world. Yeah. I have two questions I'd like to wrap up with. Okay. Has the um, title "Sensitive Skin"? garnered more meaning for you than what you witnessed on a shampoo bottle? Uh, (laughs) uh, You know, all things considered, I wish I'd chosen a better title for the magazine uh, because uh, people people tend to think, (laughs) we we still get people think, oh, this is a porno mag. You know, we still, people send pornography submissions to me. Uh And also people think it's a cosmetics ad. I still get like people signing up like, great, would you be interested in some free... (laughs) Skincare samples? I love your magazine. It's like, no, you don't. If you like spent thirty seconds looking at it, you would not be sending me offering to send me, you know, skincare right, samples. Right, right. <laughs> Unless you wrote your ingredients really well. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. And um, my next question is are you comfortable uh, sharing the title of your novel about my life. Yeah, so my novel is called, uh, and again, is either you know, idiocy or genius, I don't know. My best friend used to call me an idiot savant, so I, I don't know. But it's called, again, so it's about a realtor. Who live, I, I don't know if the, that got on the tape or not. It's about a realtor in Mill Valley who uh, stumbles across uh, a murder, or thinks he has. And it's like a neo-noir so it's written, I'm like paying homage to like James M. Cain and uh, all sorts of different mystery writers using that sort of language. He's like this, you know, he's like a realtor in Mill Valley, but thinks he's like a tough guy, a detective. Shoe, yeah, gumshoe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? And it's all about social commentary about Mill Valley. So anyway, the book is called uh, There's Never Been a Better Time to Die. Right. Because you know what realtors say? There's never been a better time to buy. So, yes. Yeah. Okay. Coming soon to a fine retailer near you before they're all driven out of business by Amazon. It'll be on Amazon at least at some point. And um, is there anything you'd like to say or share that 
Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I could just keep yakking for about all sorts of things. I'll talk about, you know. It's a beautiful world. For you. It's a beautiful world. Not me. It's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world.